0: Anthropological Airwaves is the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist, whose main offices are located on the traditional and ancestral territories of the Anacostan and Piscataway peoples. The Anacostia and Potomac Rivers have long been places of trade and gathering for indigenous peoples, and Washington, D.C. is now home to diverse indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island. American Anthropologist has published articles throughout its history that have taken knowledge from indigenous peoples for a scholarly audience and has not required its authors or editors to be good relations to indigenous peoples and communities. Acknowledging territory is only one step in repairing relationships between anthropologists and indigenous peoples. The editorial collective of the journal is committed to deep listening and engagement with indigenous scholars, peoples, and communities to explore ways to be a better relation. This episode of Anthropological Airwaves was edited and produced on the indigenous territories known as Hoking, the traditional homelands of the Lenape, also called the Leni Lenape, or Delaware Indians. These are the people who, during the 1680s, negotiated with William Penn to facilitate the founding of the colony of Pennsylvania. Their descendants today include the Delaware Tribe and the Delaware Nation of Oklahoma, the Nanticoke Leni Lenape, Ramapo Lenape, Powhatan Renape of New Jersey and the Muncie Delaware of Ontario. Parts of this episode were also recorded, edited, and produced from the traditional territories of the Catawba, Waxa, Chera, and Sugary peoples, and specifically in Charlotte, North Carolina, a city located on the traditional crossroads of two indigenous trading paths, the Okaneechi Path and the Lower Cherokee Traders Path, which facilitated the extensive trade network of Cherokee, Catawba, Saponi, and Congaree peoples prior to colonization while many of the descendants of the Chera, Waxa, and Sugary communities eventually joined the Catawba peoples. Today, the Catawba Nation continues to thrive as a federally recognized tribe located less than one hour south of where this recording took place. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of Anthropological Airwaves, the official podcast of the journal American Anthropologist. This is episode 7, season 3-ish. My name is Anar Parikh. I'm a PhD candidate in anthropology at Brown University and the associate editor of the podcast at American Anthropologist. I use she-her pronouns and I'm also the executive producer of this show. You might recall that last month, former lead editor and Anthropological Airwaves producer Kyle Olson introduced a two episode series of interviews recorded at the 2019 African Critical Inquiry Workshop, African Ethnographies Conference, held at the University of the Western Cape in Cape Town, South Africa, in 2019. Despite a somewhat extended delay, we're excited to be able to share the rich conversations. Dina Asfaha, and Sarah Rendell from the Department of Anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania, were able to have, with South Africa-based scholars, Nosifu Mogomizulu, Dominique Santos, and Karnita Mohamed, about the concept and practice of ethnography. Last month, you heard Sarah's interview with Nosifu Mogomizulu, a lecturer at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Her research focuses on national and transnational youth cultures, nation-building projects in post-colonial societies, and community-engaged learning and teaching. This month, we'll round out this two-episode series. First up is Dina Asfaha's conversation with Karnita Mohamed, a lecturer at the University of Cape Town whose research focuses on issues of race, gender, disability, and identity in post-apartheid South Africa. She is also a novelist, and her debut novel, Called to Song, was published with Quela Books in 2018. And in the second part of the episode, you will hear Sarah's interview with Dominique Santos, a lecturer at Rhodes University, whose work explores the nexus of music, play, dreaming, and heritage practices as they intersect with intimate experiences of the self, space, and social change, as well as on dreams and the role of dreaming in refusing the conditions of oppression. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: This is Dina Aspahan, and I am interviewing Karnita Mohammed for Anthropological Airwaves. Hello, Carnita. Thank you for being here with us today.
2: Thank you, Dina, for having me.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Karnita, can you just tell us a little bit, uh, beginning, uh, you're a novelist as well as an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about
2: your novel called The Song? Thank you. Um, so, "A Quarter Song" is a story about a married couple at first, and um, the ways in which the marriage reflects some visions within South African society. Um, the, the work on race that hasn't really been done, even with people who have liberatory sensibilities, and how um, race and gender within intimate spaces reflects a, a kind of historical formation, um, but in ways that does not feel like the politics, you know, that larger politics. Doesn't feel like the macro political, but how it is expressed is actually in this intimate, intimate world. So um, so this couple got married um, because she, she fell pregnant. And um, it's not a great marriage. And so we follow them, Kabila and Rashid, we follow them, they're um, sitting in the Kabila community in Cape Town. Um, we follow them as the marriage shift and Kabila's sensibility around the marriage shift and then the ways in which you know, she remakes a life.
1: Yeah, and so of course your research works, or on, in your research you really are focused on social difference, like you were saying, right? experiences of social difference and also renderings of it through things like visual culture um, and how we see that play out also through through things like citizenship, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about um, more broadly about for you the
2: relationship between your creative writing and anthropology? So the novel emerged out of an anger with anthropology. Was at a conference and I was listening to a presentation where people within Cape Town were treated as ludic characters for an anthropological audience. and made me really angry. Um, and of course, one does the intervention with the, within the space of the conference, but that's usually a very limited intervention, um, and it doesn't quite have the life that you imagine. And I went away and I thought thought about it, um, and I and. At some point, I said to myself, well, you know, if you're this angry about it, you should do something about it. Because if you're, you know, those of us who can write a little, (laughs) um, we're not going to be able to prevent the kinds of stories and narrations of lives that are reductive, that are cruel, that are misrepresentative, misrepresentations. Um, But what we can do is add to those archives, you know, add a different modality of Thinking about it, but also imagine a different audience. Because our audience necessarily is not the anthropologist within the anthropological space. Um, our audiences, you know, are the very people who are being reduced frequently, um, the very people who are being treated as objects of inquiry that one can laugh at because you are so much better than they are, because you know they don't really see themselves We you do. Um, And so that's where the novel emerged initially. Well, one of the points, you know, I had a few things happen in my life, and so some of the ways in which the story emerges, you know, came out of that moment. And I was also thinking about violence at the time, but trying to think about how violence works when it doesn't call itself, announce itself as violence. So, you know, those tiny kind of psychological violences that, Structure and restructure a life that one could, in some ways, trace to larger ideological um, modes of being, like race, gender, sexuality, etc. Um, except we don't, you know, inhabit quite those categories in the way in which one theorizes it, because those contradictions within the everyday are. They're incoherent, you know, there's an incoherence to it that I think fiction holds um, and allows one to play with um, in a way that we can't quite play play within um, ethnographic or writing. Not that, I mean, I think they do very different things and both, both are very important. Um, and I kind of think of fiction as, as case studies. You take all the theory, the theory you've read and you condense them in these different kinds of characters and you throw them at each other and you let them do the work. And sometimes they surprise you. That's fascinating. So you're
1: talking a little bit about audience engagement and what you're able to do with a novel and who you're able to reach. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how this informs your pedagogy as well.
2: Well, one of the things I ask of students is, well, I think that it matters that we we write um, ethnographic texts and we write for an academic audience or an expert audience and that the language we use for an expert audience is not necessarily the language we use for a lay audience. And so it might be an unfair ask, but I think that, and our students are versed in multiple genres of communication, whether it is the podcast. YouTube videos, whether it's um, uh, songs and music, and and so I, I think it's really really important to to try and communicate some of the things we know um, to multiple audiences, which require different registers of engagement, different modalities of engagement, and to do you know do it in ways which you love, you know, things that make you happy, writing ways that make you happy. so outside, I take that into the classroom of it as a very very serious work even though the reception of it might be pleasurable and I think there's something about how we're thinking about creative work because the reception is pleasurable as sometimes not as rigorous sometimes but just because something is pleasurable doesn't mean it's not rigorous and I don't think that's really the problem of, of other genres but rather that we've sort of uh, I think we should be demanding that people read academic texts, too. Because they, they really do do different things. Um, whereas, for me, you know, fiction takes the theory that you know and it clothes it, clothes it in a way that, in a way in which like the bones are hidden, but it's enfleshed in very interesting ways, whereas academic writing makes the bones visible. And so they do. They do very different things, you know. There is a kind of explicitness within academic writing that I think is very important. It's really crucially important but that veiling of the deep, dense language in recognizable characters, in recognizable modes, in pleasurable modes, reaches people first to affect, and then then into a kind of mode of reasoning, whereas, you know. I Really good academic work starts with reason and gets you gets you to effort. A little text, you know, so the process is a little different. I think. Thank you for that.
1: So, Carnita, can you please also talk a little bit more about the challenges of doing these two different kinds of writing alongside one another?
2: Um, it's really difficult, and I have different. Like, you know I have different people sitting on my shoulders for different t- different kinds of writing. So my critical observer when I'm writing um, academic writing is really mean and um, and so my impulse is to to move into you know creative writing to silence that critical observer even though I know that I need to speak back the critical observer in an academic register so it gets really really hard because i can't do the same kinds of laying out of an argument with a creative modality of writing that i can when i'm writing academically and and i'm constantly wanting to shift into the kind of flow that creative writing allows whereas the slowness of Academic writing. I mean, there's a slowness. The temporality is very, very different for me at least. I, it might be different by others, but for me, the temporality of academic writing is it's, it's slow and it's measured and it requires that movement between um, between reading and writing um, and I'm kind of slowing down. The creative impulse is to just take the sentiment, take the affect, and work from that affective register and just and render um, a scene that makes the act legible in, in, in a way, which is much easier to do, you know, in some ways. And so having to shift between those different temporalities but also the different spaces through which those, um temporal unfoldings happen can, is, is quite hard, actually, um, you know, so it requires a little ritual. <laughs> you know different different ways of getting into it. And, I, and I've kind of raised at that you know you can't be working on two, two projects at the same time you have to just work on an academic project and then work on a novel you know um, and that's the only thing that's really worked because um, I think they draw from different they draw from different places and it's not that um, like I really, really, really want to write. I have a story. I want to write it. I can see my characters unfolding. They're screaming at me, but I really have to finish. You know, writing this, this PhD. I've got to write it and finish it. The process doing. So, so I think it's quite challenging. It can be quite challenging to to actually hold off on um, moving into a project that allows you to do something funny with reading where that you know that that passing out of genealogies of thinking etc that one does when you're reading for academic writing that you can just you know you can condense and summarize it in 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 interesting ways. Uh, it's not uninteresting, in interesting ways when in you're when you're writing fiction.
1: Yeah, and I'm, you know, in speaking to you, I'm thinking about what it's like to prepare an academic piece of writing, and what it might be like for you to write something like fiction, and sort of what that process is, the type of research you might do, the type of archives you might consult, and so, uh, what has that been like for you in writing? Called the song, for instance. What was your, uh, or the archives that you might have been drawing from?
2: Well, most of it was was you know writing from a kind of situated knowledge. You know, because we accumulate these stories that for um, which we understand where we're from and, and and bring all of them together, but out of context. Because that's you know when you're writing when you're writing fiction, you're 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 being faithful to a sensibility of a context, you know, not not necessarily the context itself as it as it unfolded within a particular moment. So so most of it is you know the gathering of stories, so stories of people that I've known, you know, stories that come out of my own experience, but again placed within a, a different context. Um, a lot of reading um, and the cum- a kind of cumulative body of reading was the for quarter song, the story that I wanted to tell was not the way this, the the novel emerged because my characters refused. They didn't want to turn out what I wanted to do, and you know, and I'd done a lot of reading. It was supposed to be um, a story about the about tradition and modernity, and the the ways in which biomedicine frames particular kinds of embodied experiences versus and so, the, the readings, the reading that I did, a lot of the reading and the work that I done was around schizophrenia and thinking about the, uh, mental institutions and the institute. And and this was not the story. I mean, this just was not the story. I you know I ended up having to rewrite quite a bit at the beginning because that just wasn't the story. So it, so I guess it, in a way the archive that was consul- that was the archive that was consulted was misdirected or under-utilized archives. So I don't know how one talks about that. And some of the ways in which we think about the archive, because it's an archive of sensibility, it's an archive of affect, which you know is lodged in, 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 in a particular kind of self, at a particular kind of moment, um, where you are able to not just reflect on experience, but also you are able to go back to an experience and mine it. in in a way, so that you can communicate the sensibility of or the the effective force of um, a particular event or a particular... I mean, and I think if you're doing it well, you're really mining, you know, a range of feeling, which you might not do for an academic text. You hope that you write with sufficient force so that you connect with a kind of effective life that might not be in place, you know, but where you're very deliberately utilizing your own sort of effective knowledge, which might not be related to the experience you're writing about. You know, so it's a kind of disconnect in that. And you're, you're mining that so that you can very quickly, in a kind of short and recognizable way, create that effective response in the reader. So, I mean, and I don't know how I speaks about that, Archive, right? Um, um, and you know, um, if you've lived life with a reasonable mode, a reasonable amount of openness, I mean, the sub becomes the archive, you know, an attentiveness to to not just um, what you observe, but what the effects and the effects, then, you know, and the effect of, of a particular kind of experience. My, my agenda, um, I don't know that I can go off and, you know, find it um, But, you know, and then like literature, how have other people um, uh, managed to do this? you know, what works elsewhere, what doesn't work, uh, uh, the kind of auto-adaptive training, that what that that kind of training one does when you're reading like hundreds of texts on writing and how you write fiction. Or, I mean, so one of the things that I did, for example, was I did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hours of hours of transcription. And some would, you know, it's because you're insecure and you think I can never write dialogue, and so of course you overcompensate. <laughs> and but I wanted to be able to write. Dialogue not faithfully because you can't actually write, I mean, because you know it's when you transcribe, right? You can't write and render it um, in a way that is pleasurable to read if you were actually doing direct, you know, debating transcriptions. But you know, how can you very quickly provide some kind of characterization through through dialogue as well as an almost you know in a kind of strategic essentialism? sort of show that this is a person with a different history and so sort of the dialogue reflects that and then of course I destabilise that because you know, I do a lot of that in the novel I set up a character and then I show actually well you know imagine this co- person as a cultural subject of a particular sort but hey let's not be Um, you know so play with the generalisation so and so I did, did, did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of you know I'd ask people to 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 uh, you know using their data because it's different when you're using somebody else's data and you're not analysing it, whereas your own data the impulses to 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 begin to analyse while you're doing the transcription. Mm-hmm. So then I could listen to all these you know these accents mm-hmm. and try and you know write, write right. the dialogue. So so I guess it's that you know to begin to compile uh, sort of compile accents, but that one can represent uh, through language because you don't actually have the body register. So you know, um, what do people do with prepositions? Blah, 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 you know, etc. And to be able to show a particular kind of history. So, so one of the things that I I, I have begun to worry about, um, you know, is that in our quest for for modes of representation that that reaches large amounts of people. So sort of the massification of what we know and utilizing multi representation within popular culture and move away from thinking with and writing with in academic genres of writing um, is is what kind of future that produces if you know um, Because there are creative writing departments, there are film schools, there are, I mean, these spaces (laughs) exist, art schools exist, uh, you know. So, what that might entail for not modes of representation, but for the capacity to read and own the archive, what does it mean if, let's say, in 20 years, all our students, how they're learning anthropology? are through these modes that generate uh, an effective force differently to the way in which academic writing does. Because academic reading is, is hard. It's really hard. Texts are dense. Um, so the language requires work. The discourse requires work. The conceptual framing and the toolkit. And this, you know, uh, it, it's it's hard work. And, and I see it with students who would prefer to, to engage with a, uh, modalities of communication that are um, pleasurable and and who wouldn't you know um, but what what does it mean if if we expose that's but if we expose um, new generations of intellectuals to to these modalities you know and, and enable large-scale refusal of academic writing that's written in a different mode you know that's written in uh, modes that feel alienating and i think there's a there's trouble there um, because what we're doing is i mean it's the closing of the archive it's we're making that archive that the, the work of engaging the archive across time and space um, much harder for those want to engage that archive that the tactics and the strategies of reading not just writing but and I think those tactics and strategies of reading are crucial if we're not you know willing and I don't know if it's about war, but if it's about you know if we're saying this language is dense it's obscure it does particular kinds of violences in the kind of labour it expects of us we're also doing something else, and I, and I worry about that um, because I, I because I do think that you know an expert audience is not a lay audience, and to to collapse those audiences is is to do something which I think might give us a lot of trouble in twenty or thirty years. Or you know, I mean, and so so, so I've been thinking about that a lot. That you know, how do you do those the two kinds of work at the same? And, and and I don't think I would have gotten there without having written a novel and recognizing that, yes, this is deeply rigorous. It is, you know, it really does represent cumulative, a kind of cumulative praxis knowledge of knowledge making and, and thinking and, and worrying about the world, that there's you know, there's a politics to, to this writing, but it doesn't do the the actual work. Um, because a culture cloud, you know, clothes, using an analogy and metaphor and, and characters and scenes, and, and but it doesn't do the explicit work of laying out uh, a line of thinking, um, which as difficult as it might be to read and engage with, or as difficult as that is, it's still necessary, and it and it holds different kinds of pleasures. I mean you know like we know right you read a really difficult text but it says the things you know and it engages with the concerns one has for the world or what you thought about you know and and there's something really pleasurable after having read this text a number of times and every time something surprising emerges and shifts how you're thinking about something there's something pleasurable about that, and to be able to convey that kind of pleasure, you know, to to say, well, you know, some things are not necessarily palatable and easy on the first encounter, but the joy is actually in staying with it, in abiding with, you know, a text, with abiding with a, a difficult, sometimes, text. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, and again, it's a kind of temporality because the temporality is different. Um, so yeah, so that's something I think that I've learned from writing fiction, you know, that I've not just prized really fantastic academic writing that says important things, even though it might not have been um, easy to read.
1: Okay, thank you so much for speaking with us today and you leave us with some really important insights about the future of anthropology, the future of writing altogether, and where we are going with with our practices of rendering the social world. So thank you.
2: Thank you very much for
3: Sarah Rendell, and I'm here in Cape Town, South Africa, with Dr. Dominique Santos. Welcome, Dr. Santos. Thank you. Um, Dr. Santos is currently a lecturer at Rhodes University, and she is um, an anthropologist by training. That's correct?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I am was really excited, actually, to hear about your throughout your academic trajectory. Can I do that again? Okay. (laughs) Um, I wanted to actually start this interview asking you a bit about your academic trajectory. Yeah. Um, One that has been organized by a commitment to unsettle the coloniality of being, uh, the words of Sylvia Winter. Mm -hmm. I wanted to hear you tell us a little bit about what that trajectory has looked like for
4: you. Okay, well, it's been an unsettled trajectory. Um, I'd call it a crooked path into academia. Um, One that was not planned or particularly intentional, but has sometimes felt almost directed by things beyond my control. Um, uh, Almost a pushing of... uh, circumstances that have kind of created moments of serendipity that opened doors um and then moments of of absolute frustration where it felt like no forward motion was possible at all um so I I came to academia kind of via a less conventional route than most I I left school without doing very well um in the UK I'd I'd, I'd moved to the the United Kingdom as a teenager from South Africa um, and kind of, you know, the, our, our family life kind of fell apart and I was very much sort of raising myself and, you know, not, not, not doing the greatest job of being good at school. Um, so after school, I, I kind of flitted around. I, I, did a, I did an access course in media at a kind of community college in London, um, got a job in a video shop you know in the olden days we had video shops um and i guess i felt like okay where's life where's life going and i i i had a friend um who was doing a a degree in anthropology and communications at goldsmiths and when he told me about it i just thought god i want to do that you know because i guess it it spoke to my sense of not being placed in the world in a way that made sense in the categories of uh, of identity or belonging that, you know, that I'd grown up in South Africa or encountered in in the UK. And something about the way he described anthropology seemed like I might get some answers there, you know, about something I wanted to know about but didn't have a toolkit to describe yet. And so I applied and I applied only for that course. Anthropology and communications at Goldsmiths, nothing else. Um, and I remember my boyfriend at the time, his mother helped me do the university application form. And, you know, because it was all just, you know, very much not my comfort zone. Uh, and they called me for interview because actually it kind of corresponded with this enormous expansion of higher education in the UK in the in the 90s. So... Yeah, they they wanted bums on seats, so even though I'd done really badly at school, um, they called me for an interview, uh, and I was so desperate to do something more than work in the video shop that I just read all the anthropology I could find. I remember reading something by João Pina de Cabral about like Portuguese, you know, fertility figures in some backwater in the Alentejo. I'm probably getting that all wrong. But you know, I was like, I really wanted to perform well in this interview, and and I must have done all right because they offered me a place. Plus, that that whole expansion of higher education thing, so they they needed the you know they needed the numbers. Um, but as it turned out, uh, I was quite good at it. University, I, and it was probably because for the first time in my educational life, I was actually learning about something or, or or learning in a way about things that meant something to me and I I, I do think it's it's a oh it sounds almost religious doesn't it like a conversion story but I felt a little bit like Neo in the in the Matrix you know that that film where you know he, there's a point in the film where he suddenly kind of gets how to operate in these you know multiple dimensions and he starts picking bullets out the air and that's a little bit how it felt like I was getting this information that was helping me to pull the bullets out the air about why the world is the way it is, why I'm in the world, why, you know, bodies are the way they are and all the rest of it. I mean, and interestingly, the very first course I did at Goldsmiths was the uh, ethnography of the Caribbean, which for me as, as someone who'd grown up in South Africa was actually a perfect starting point And I think is the sort of first serendipitous moment because of you know, the ethnography of the Caribbean is really an ethnography of, of how cultures and societies are dynamic, are in a process of becoming, um, but also about the formation of the, the modern world system, about the emergence of you know the, the consumer capitalist economy, its foundations on plantation slavery, um, you know, all these things. And, and for me, that was just a profound toolkit. To kind of understand, and I could also apply that to the South Africa that I had grown up in, which emerges out of very similar uh, processes and, and power flows. Well, the same ones, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're all just circulating. And um, so yeah, so I so I did well, and I got I got a first class degree, and um, and actually in the in the course of the degree, I kind of became obsessed with knowing more about South Africa, where I'd, where I'd grown up. So every essay, everything I would try and write about South Africa because I wanted to know more.
3: Hmm.
4: Um, and then I did my undergraduate thesis on Kwaito music, which is a post-apartheid youth cultural uh, form, a uh, form of electronic dance music. Um, and I was a house head. I was really into garage, and UK garage, all of this in London, and and kind of returning to South Africa for the first time in those university years I found that that music was a bridge uh, for me but also it spoke to a kind of global flow of beats and uh, you know dance that that helped me to connect the dots between disparate places. So I got this first class degree and thought you know I didn't kind of know what was coming next, and someone just made an aside to me, a teacher who'd really inspired me, made an aside, saying, oh, you should come and do research with us. And I went, should I? That never even occurred to me. I could do that. And I went and chatted to them. And, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't thinking straight, because, of course, if you're, if you're thinking straight, you would, you'd probably see where, where else you could go to do your research, or who's the best sort of fit for you. But I was just so grateful that someone had said, come and do research with us. I just went straight there, you know, back to Goldsmiths. Mm-hmm. And, and i got some some funding and 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 started a, a phd um, straight after the degree with a, with a kind of masters of research sort of stuck onto it um and this phd was meant to be about kind of continuing this work on Kwaito and post-apartheid youth culture um but it it didn't end up being about that at all um because you know and this is the thing with with ethnography, with anthropology, you know, it's, it's not lab conditions, it's, it's life, and, um, for me returning to South Africa to sort of do the research for this, this PhD, um, you know, it was a, it was a big homecoming for me, uh, and I was a, a performer as well, I was by this point DJing myself, and, um, you know, I came back to Joburg, because this is where I, Joburg is where I'd grown up, and, you know, reconnecting with, um, with 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 people there, with people I knew, and um, yeah, just I guess rediscovering a sense of rootedness in the city, uh, kind of um, coming back round again to a place I'd left as a teenager, and was sort of, uh, coming back to a country which had profoundly changed since I'd left, um, and and yeah, I mean, I, I was playing out and you know doing all kinds of things I'm not even sure that I wanted to carry on doing anthropology you know I was kind of doing quite well as a performer and um you know opportunities were opening up for me there and I was very much on the brink of saying you know what actually the performance side is where I want to go actually you know um and then I got pregnant I had a little baby (laughs) um and that threw everything out um and, and it threw everything out because um, I was, like I said, kind of ready to give up academia and go on another path. But I had, you know, I, had, I was pregnant and, um, you know, not, not a well-resourced person. Neither was my, my partner at the time. And, well, he's still my partner. He's now my husband. And we've got two more children. Just So, you know, there's a lovely, <laughs> happy ending here. But oh. um, there was this sense of, okay survival mode so my research funding gave provision for maternity leave so I kind of stayed with this academic trajectory because it was supporting me with resources to kind of live out what was playing out in my life Um, but having this baby was like a big shock because you know I I I had the baby in the UK to to make sure she had a British passport um, and then came back to south africa and she was very small and and found myself very isolated in johannesburg and off the back of that i would none of my friends are babies all of this stuff and it's it's a hostile city for you know uh, women <coughs> and children generally sorry um, um should i say that again understand. Uh, sure and then while we are okay yeah
3: pause, you could talk more in this direction yeah, sure I don't know if sorry if you want to come yeah. here i feel that is oh. Yeah, sorry.
4: That's all right. Um,
3: you were saying it was a hostile... Yeah, it was a,
4: it was a kind of hostile environment. Um, and and very lonely, you know. Oh. So I would I would walk... I was living in my, my then-boyfriend, now-husband's, sister's house with her family and him. Um, and he, my mother-in-law lived just down the road. So I would trek over to her every day with the baby and kind of watch Oprah and do housework and listen to music. And my research had been on post-apartheid youth culture and on boundary crossing between people who'd been previously segregated by apartheid in this kind of youth cultural frame. Mm -hmm. Um, But sitting with her every day for, you know, almost a year, uh, I kind of spoke to her what what emerged out of our conversations was was her story of also uh, similar kind of music cultures that brought or or permitted a space in which uh, people who were whose bodies were positioned in different ways in the apartheid state kind of found a, a meeting point
3: mm-hmm.
4: um, and that was both in, in a very intimate level in how her parents met in in Durban in the, in the 1940s, uh, a white woman and a so-called coloured man, coloured being a, a term in South Africa to refer to people of mixed race. Um, uh, and then her own trajectory, kind of um, coming to Johannesburg in the 1970s and being immersed in the jazz scene. Uh, so when i when i kind of realized that i had no choice but to sort of pick up the phd again um to kind of survive <laughs> and uh, and have something to do um i found that i could only start with her story and so the phd kind of became a story about about uh about social change about about multiracial youth cultures but over many generations um and sort of tracing that that intimate that intimate story through through her life narrative, and then as it came to sort of meet meet mine, um, and it took a very long time to finish because I, I had another child, and you know it was there were all kinds of you know it's issues with housing and blah blah blah, but somehow I just kind of held on. Um, and eventually, it, it got through. Although dreams were a very key part of that, that which was, I'll get to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I,
3: I said <laughs> I was going to say you anticipated my next question. Mm-hmm. I was wondering because now your work is primarily concerned with dreams. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if at the time dreams had already become a part of your interrogation, or if that happened
4: later. No, they, they were not a part of my interrogation, but they were becoming um, important. And they became, certainly in, in the, I don't even want to call it data, but in the, in the stories I was, that my mother-in-law was telling me, um, one story in particular, which was not related to music, but which was related to uh, an occurrence of a sort of uh, multiple dreaming event that happened between herself, her father, and another friend um, that caused an intervention in her life that uh, profoundly altered the course of it to the point where I could almost attribute the birth of my own children to this dream altering the course of her life because, of course, if her life hadn't altered, she would have never had her son, he would have never met me, we would have never had my children, right? Right. So I kind of it really, and I couldn't forget. I couldn't forget it. I couldn't forget this kind of enormously significant um, dream, dream, you know, multiple dreaming event, for want of a better way of putting it. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I couldn't forget it. And I, and I and I I just felt there's something here that's really significant about about the dream itself. As a space of uh, social action, as something that can activate docile bodies—bodies bodies which are in um, social spaces which are incredibly uh, restricting—and um, yeah, and it, it, I, you know, I couldn't let it go. And and when I was struggling with my own PhD to sort of finish it, um, I I started using a dreaming practice to engage with my academic work through the dream space. So uh, I've I've been a lucid dreamer, someone who wakes up in their dreams um, since a young age, Um, but I started to engage with it in a more, uh, I guess, um, conscious, excuse the pun, um, way in that, you know, if I found that I was awake in the dream, that I was conscious that I was dreaming, I would ask a question. Um, Mm. And in one dream, I asked a question about, my PhD work, and how to finish it, and um, what resulted was a kind of incredible sort of series of um, both dream explanations and then real life. Or I won't say real life because the dream life is a real life, waking life um, occurrences, which which helped me to complete my PhD. Um, so, yeah, so that the, the combination of those two things meant that I I couldn't ignore the fact that the dream is a significant social actor, that there's something about the dream itself which uh, mobilizes or can mobilize um, and have affect in the waking world that I found profoundly interesting.
3: Mm, that's really interesting. Um, now, it, there is a jump, maybe, mm. and tell me if there isn't, mm-hmm from interrogating acting within moving in one's own dreams Mm. and then when the dreams of others become the object of your own ethnographic inquiry Mm. so maybe talk to me about how other people's dreams how how you approach those ethnographically
4: and why so the the project I'm developing is is called Dreams in Solitary, um, and what I'm what I'm interested in there is um, how dreams can intervene in the situations where uh, actions are severely uh, constrained. So. Solitary refers to you know, people in solitary confinement or in social situations where their agency is, is severely limited. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of hearing from, from people who've, been, who've experienced those conditions how, or if at all, um, dreams came up as, as part of that experience and what that meant, or what that performed for them. Um, And the project's in its very early stages, uh, but um, in one one example, a woman, and I'm I'm particularly interested in in the South African people who were in solitary confinement during the South African uh, liberation era, liberation struggle era. Um, And in one one story, a, a woman had been arrested by the security police um, on suspicion of, uh, sort of aiding and abetting the, the African National Congress. Uh, and the, the security police, I think, were hoping to get um, information from her about uh, someone they felt was quite sort of a significant player. Uh, and she was placed into solitary confinement with, with kind of no sense of how long that would last for and, and, and interrogated every day. But what she told me was that Every night, she would dream about forests and rivers, really beautiful, uh, open, um, natural spaces. And she would wake up in the morning feeling absolutely refreshed, as if she'd been in the open air and in a forest and in this space of incredible natural beauty all night. And that that gave her the the sort of um, strength to be interrogated, um, and that also that struck me as as another sort of an absolutely fascinating example of of what kind of uh, support is generated by our you know and i and i use these words with an absolute recognition of their cultural frame but the but but our subconscious or the unconscious um what kinds of supportive mechanisms can come be put in place that rise up from that where where other kinds of agency are completely foreclosed if i'm hearing you right
3: part of what you're talking about is a kind of fugitivity through dreaming for people who are whose agency, whose mobility, um, whose ability to relate to others socially outside of interrogative contexts,
4: were mm. constrained. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, but there's also an interest in how the dream can also activate a um, uh, waking waking world shifts. Um, so, so we're a, we're a, so in in another situation where it's it's not an interrogation situation or a, a solitary confinement situation, but where it feels as if social action is utterly constrained or impossible. Um, how the dream can activate the docile body. Um, so yeah, so not simply that it's. So yes, the dream as refuge as the. As kind of a, a an alternative mode of being that that permits survival, um, but also the dream as a, a, an activator, as something that um, pushes certain waking world actions to take place. Mm. Yeah, and you've used the term
3: subconscious refusals in mm. dreaming. What does that mean?
4: Well, you know, in the in the examples I've looked at, it. It feels as if in the situations experienced, there was a sense of capitulation to, uh, to an authority or, or a situation of imprisonment that was um, unovercomerable. <laughs> mm. You know, it, it can't mm. be overcome, uh, so mm. surrender to that. Mm. But something else comes to refuse that condition. And that something else is the dream. Um, And that is interesting to me. And I I think even the the term subconscious is probably uh, one that must be interrogated a little more fully. Because that also, I think the word subconscious implies... um, It kind of limits it to an individual kind of mind, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But I, I kind of also get a sense of something um, that breaks down this idea of the individual body being uh, a can kind of self-contained entity um, and that the dream world is sort of something that is less limited and that subconscious makes it feel like it's just within a person but it might be more productive to consider how this might be a way of exploring um, how how spaces of communication open between people or between uh, uh, spirits, between ancestors, between the natural world, between you know all kinds of non-human actors um, in ways which I think anthropology is becoming increasingly interested in. As a serious mode of inquiry, right? And this is going beyond the sort of rationality debate and is it real or is it not real? It's, it's kind of taking seriously the idea of a, of a more than human, um, more than human communication or more than human connection, more than human sociality, mm-hmm. which would be different from
3: a Jungian notion of the collective unconscious or these archetypes that
4: I think there's a resonance there. I think the collective unconscious certainly resonates with, with what I'm, I'm sort of grappling with. Uh, but again, that, you know, there's been so many ways to, to describe this, um, you know, beyond the Western canon, um, so to kind of use that as a beginning point and then extrapolate from that also feels mm-hmm. profoundly limited. Mm-hmm. So, you know, subconscious refusals kind of came to me, but um, I think part of the work is to interrogate even that kind of framing. Yeah.
3: Mm. Mm-hmm. Have you tried to enter into conversation with someone only to find that they... Don't dream, or they don't recall dreaming. In other words, you know, for whom is the dream not this useful space?
4: Absolutely. I mean, this is the thing, it's, and that's also what's interesting. Why do some people dream in this way, and why do others not? Mm. Um, that's not a question I have an answer for. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me. Mm. Um, it's also interesting when people who don't dream or don't have a cultural framework for taking dreams particularly seriously are have one really significant dream or uh, or find themselves acting because of a dream you know um so yeah you know the, and and that for me speaks to something that is more than simply a a, a belief system or a, a set of cultural practices or you know a propensity for dreaming mm. um but yeah mm-hmm.
3: yeah and this is a question, I think, a bit about method. Mm. I'm curious how how you... Do you take field notes on other people's dreams? Do you do interviews with them talking about the dream and how
4: it's affected them? I, how do you listen for dreams? So, well, so far, um, and this may change as as things develop, but... But so far, I've I've really only worked with people who who I know or who whose stories come up through the course of another kind of interaction, um, and this is what I what I mean when I talk about serendipity, right? So, uh, so for example, one of the stories I got came about because I was talking about um, the project, and this person started to tell me a story of significance, um, and so I uh then ask them if i could interview them and I, I already had an existing relationship with this person um and i think that that is you know certainly i think that, you know having an an existing network or coming to people about very intimate um you know things in their lives that the power of the of having already cultivated a relationship um is valuable mm.
3: um,
4: to be able to then sit down and and, and record it mm. uh, and yeah I would uh, sit and kind of sit in a situation like this and 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 talk about it um, so there's the formal recording but there's also the sort of way in which you come to the story in the first place which is not formal mm. um, I mean I, I don't know how this will change if I were to to try and uh, kind of Extend the um the range of of people I'm connecting with about things like this, and I uh, you know how to kind of consider you know the methodological implications of that. Um, but yeah,
3: mm-hmm. and why dreams and not fantasies? Or are you um, are you also concerned with fantasy? Well, the,
4: no. <laughs> uh, no, I, I like a bit of fantasy um but for me the fantasy is coming from a place of uh of intention right whereas the dream comes from something else i mean it may i mean and, and when i say that i mean people can there's all kinds of dreaming practices that that can be done intentionally right dream seeding and uh um you know i mean my own lucid dreaming adventures of intentionally asking a question in the dream. Um, But there's, there's an interaction in the dream with something that has almost a power and a life of its own. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure there's a better way of putting that, but, but that's, that's the only way I can express it right now is that there is a sense of being in conversation with something more than yourself whereas a fantasy is something else it's another modality
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um i'm i'm wondering then looping back to um a commitment to decoloniality how do you see um I guess because I know it is early and mm. <laughs> you know, it's hard to talk about a project when you're just embarking on it, mm. and, um, but what is the decolonizing purchase of these dreams or of
4: interrogating dreams like this in the real and for whom? Well, I guess in terms of of whose dreaming stories I'm interested in, these are people who've whose whose bodies and whose lives have been acted upon in particularly violent and limiting ways by uh, colonial forms of logic, control. Um, And I am deeply invested in examining how the more-than-human world responds to these kinds of... uh, controlling violent systems mm-hmm. um, I'm not the only one I mean uh, in the 80s uh, the anthropologist um, David Lann his ethnography on spirit mediums in the uh, Zimbabwean War of Liberation mm-hmm. and the uh, you know incredibly productive relationship between soldiers and spirit mediums in order to call on the, uh, the ancestors to assist in in the liberation struggle, you know these are these are not um, these are not new you know alliances um, and I think there's probably uh, much more to be said or to be found out about the ways in which um uh, struggles for self-determination uh, for liberation to to refuse conditions of of control and violence. Have been uh, supported by relationships with with the more than human world,
3: hmm.
4: whether that is uh, ancestral spirits or or whatever. And and dreams are of course um, a, a, a very important space in which communication with the more than human world, particularly ancestral, uh, you know, ans- the ancestors, can hmm. take place. You know, and in the Southern African context, you know, that's that's well documented. Um, you know the dream as as one of the places where where contact and where communication can take place.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: A place of contact and communication that isn't
3: um, the immediate everyday moment that might be profoundly oppressive for the person who's there at yeah. that time.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and otherwise, and otherwise, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I think certainly in the Zimbabwean case, this was a you know, a, an absolute military tactic, to to draw on the technology of of spirit mediums in order to to support the the liberation effort. Um, you know, and I think that also that you know, there's a caveat which is that it's not that these forces or this uh, you know this way of engaging with the superconscious, the unconscious, the subconscious, the more than human. Is always utilised, you know, against oppression. I mean, you know, in a way, I think looking forward into the, you know, I don't know whatever our future looks like, um, and the fact that there is a, a real sense of power at work in this, mm. power that can be mobilised and directed, mm. um, you know, and I think anthropological work on witchcraft and you know across across Africa. You know, speaks to how you know power is and the play of power and how it's used and by whom and against whom is you know is a is, is a profoundly important part of um, of uh, of considering this as a realm of, of social action mm. um you know I'm I, I kind of keep an eye on um, how lucid dreaming for example is is being deployed in you know in all kinds of um, uh, corporate and uh tech uh contexts to to generate ideas to generate innovation mm, right mm-hmm. to to engage the dream in order to you know serve the interests of uh you know the the, the new realms of consumer capitalism i mean this is not a you know mm-hmm. a, a dimension of sociality which is exclusively the province of
0: mm-hmm.
4: of a counter or a decolonial narrative it's it's a realm of power,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
4: and we we must take it seriously.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm. This is leading to me. We've been talking about, a lot about how you yourself um, and what you understand to be uh, the importance of dreams, how they act on the real, how the real acts within them, Um, that they are a domain not outside of power relations, and also the way in which they're not individual spaces. What happens in dreams is collective, and it brings in multiple bodies. One of the things I'm wondering, then, is how do your interlocutors themselves um, describe to you the importance of these dreams, what they find them to do, or why they even care to share about them or to mark them um, as important. And I imagine that there are probably as many answers mm. to that questions as there are dreams you've talked to people about. Mm. So I, I don't mean to give you a,
4: an impossible question to answer, but maybe if you could give me a sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean... Um think I'll, I'll, I'll maybe speak to a specific example, the one that, that kind of triggered all of this in the first place, which was my mother-in-law's um, experience as a young woman, um, and, and how she understood what happened versus how I interpreted it. Um, so I, I interpreted it as this, um, this event that had uh, you know, profoundly altered the course of her life to the point where it had given her life, And that that kind of gift of life had even resulted in the gift of life of my own children, right? So this very liberatory uh, discourse around it and and refusing the conditions in which the dream took place. And perhaps I should tell you a little bit more about that. She was, It was in the 1960s, the early 1960s in uh, South Africa, the the height of the apartheid era. And she was a a mixed race woman, um, young woman. Who uh, had a white mother and a, a coloured father, um, to use the terminology of, of South African uh, racial taxonomy, um, and she had uh, become pregnant um, following a violent event and had been sent to a, a Catholic mission station. So they were a Catholic family. She'd been sent to a Catholic mission station in the in the hills of KwaZulu Natal, um, and was living in isolation there with with with. Uh, Priests and nuns who didn't talk to her. There were no other uh, young people there. So it was this incredibly isolating confinement. Mm. And one night she decided that uh, she couldn't go on and she was going to just walk over one of the cliffs. So she uh, headed off and, and was walking over to the cliff And uh, just as she was about to go over it, three nuns appeared, turned her around and walked her back to her room where they sat embroidering on the bed until she fell asleep. And she describes hearing the swish of their habits, their nuns' habits, as they walked her back to to the room. And the next morning she woke up and she heard the sound of a Studebaker lark, a beautiful 1950s motor car coming up the drive, and she recognised it immediately as the car of her father's friend. Um, And she packed her bag and stood outside the room, and no sooner did her father appear with his friend in this car, they didn't say a word, she got into the car and drove off, away from this terrible isolation and this sense of, of being suicidal. And her father told her when they stopped for a pie and some something to eat he told that he'd had a dream the previous night that he needed to get her. Mm. And when he called his friend Peter in the morning um, his friend had also had a dream the previous night. And so there was this convergence of what seems to be a sort of miraculous intervention and two dreams. And we've we've spoken about it since quite a lot, and she thinks perhaps the you know she wasn't awake when she went over the end that that was also a dream, but that she wasn't even aware that it was a dream it was so real um but either way, I mean, it speaks to a, a kind of um an enactment of of the you know the the despair she was she was feeling and you know and prepared to sort of end her own life in order to escape what was an impossible situation. Um, but she's also reflected on how she felt about it at the time. And how she felt about it at the time was that it was God who had intervened in her desire to end her life. It was God who had stopped her from going over the, the cliff. God who'd sent the dreams to her father and his friend. And she was actually angry with God. Because mm. she was like, I was I didn't want to live. I didn't want to live. You know, she had the baby. The baby was taken away and given up for adoption. She was devastated and she didn't want to live. And she was angry with God. She she put her words, were, I was angry with God for years. <laughs> <laughs> for years. For years. Years of being angry with God um, before she kind of came to a, a different relationship to what had happened. So in, in her telling of of the story, there is... Actually, many years of not even wanting that intervention of not even recognizing it as something that was uh opening up the possibility of life for her that was only to come many years later and yeah, and then the framing of 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 it being an act of god um but that's also something that 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 I take seriously um and I think I spoke to it earlier about, about not limiting uh, the, the interventions and the sociality of the dream to a, an individual's body or to the subconscious or the unconscious, as it's kind of understood in you know Jungian or Freudian terms, but to, to recognize a kind of uh, power inherent in it that is more than human, however that's conceptualized you know, as God or ancestors or whatever.
3: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Santos. For You're welcome, welcome doing this interview <laughs> with us. Yeah, that was nice. Thanks.
0: <laughs> and that's a wrap on this South Africa special feature. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Anthropological Airwaves. We'll be back in your ears next month with more great anthro audio. Many thanks to Kyle Olson, who edited and produced this episode, for making a reappearance on Anthropological Airwaves. I hope he and all of the founding members of Anthropological Airwaves know that they're welcome back on the show anytime. Interviews were conducted by Sarah Rendell and Dina Asfaha at the African Critical Inquiry Workshop African Ethnographies Conference, held at the University of the Western Cape in Cape Town, South Africa, in 2019. Many thanks to Dominique Santos and Carnito Mohammed for their time and insights. The intro and outro music you hear is Waiting by Croander. The episode also features the song Huku by South African artist Sho Majozi. As always, a closed caption version of the episode will be available on the Anthropological Airwaves YouTube channel, and a full transcription on the episode page on the American Anthropologist website. Links to both are included in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Anthropological Airwaves wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, don't forget to rate and review us while you're there. A five-star review in particular will help other listeners find the show. We would also love to hear from you in general. If you have feedback, recommendations, or thoughts on recent episodes, send an email to amanthpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on our Facebook page, Anthropological Airwaves, or on Twitter with the handle at anthroairwaves. Find links to all of our contact information in the show notes and on the Anthropological Airwaves section of the American Anthropologist website.